The first female Viagra hits the market this month. Now before you run out and pop this magic little pill, you might want to hear what this documentary filmmaker of Orgasm Inc. has to say about why we're even calling this a disease and Big Pharma's influence on female sexuality. You're listening to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. I'm T. And I'm A. So, so. <laughs> I feel like we start every show that way. Because we're like, <laughs> oh my God. So the new thing that we've learned. <laughs> so, okay. So yes, female, the first FDA approved female Viagra, it's called technically phlebansorin. I think it's Adye. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's coming out this month, October. And I've been following this a little bit. I just wrote a blog. I've been following, uh, yeah. About my perspective on Sprout Pharmaceutical. And you can check that out at pbwitha.com. But we're excited to have with us today uh, Liz Kanner, who mm-hmm. is the creator and filmmaker of Orgasm Inc., which if you haven't seen this movie, it's enlightening and I, everybody needs to see it. Yeah, so you can find it on all major channels. Netflix, Netflix Hulu. iTunes, Hulu, everything. Um, so Liz, hi. <laughs> hi, thanks so much for having me on your show and for doing this. Of course. Thank you for your work. Um, so... So your film, uh, it came out in 2009, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it was v- very informative, wonderful. And But there's been a lot of movement in the industry since then. And I know, and Flavanserin is a big part of this. And you just you, you were just mentioned to me that you were at the FDA trials for Flavanserin. For this, mm-hmm. yeah, this year. So um, maybe you could like give an update as to what, I don't know, this just came out and, and the process of the the drug that's in existence today. Sure, right. So actually, Orgasm Inc. was uh, finished in 2009, and then they updated it in 2010 with the first hearing for Flibanserin, or now called Addy, um, the drug that's coming out in, you know, toward the end of this month. Um, and basically, um, because of what I learned through making Orgasm Inc., I was very concerned um, about flibanserin. It was rightly rejected in 2010 and was rejected again in 2013. Um, and then through an incredible political campaign that involved uh, convincing women's organizations like now that there was some great injustice going on um, and that there was sexism at the FDA, uh, Fibanserin was approved um, in June. Um, unfortunately, what came out not only in the hearing recently, but the original hearing was that the drug really doesn't work. It provides 0.8 of a satisfying sexual event a month above placebo. It only works in 10% of women. Um, and the reality is that the side effects are things like uh, losing consciousness. It can't oh be taken God. if you drink alcohol. Um, it makes you very sleepy. So um, there were three times more car accidents on the drug. Um, the wow. list of, of potential risks goes on and on. And for such little efficacy, and in fact, in the daily studies, they did a daily diary of their desire levels. The clinical trial subjects reported no increase in desire. It was only when they looked back over a month that they saw that there was any change in retrospect. But when they actually did the Daily Diary recording what they felt that day, which is probably the most accurate, there was absolutely no change. So it's a drug that that is really concerning and doesn't work, and certainly it's not the female Viagra. It does not provide, uh, you know, what Viagra does, which is basically a good erection, and, and, you know, men do seem to enjoy it, and it does seem to work. This is a drug 
it really doesn't. Right. And I, you know, one thing when I was reading about, like, I, I read uh, What Do Women Want by Daniel Bergner. It's, we love this, that book here <laughs> at Pushing Boundaries. But he, and I was shocked, I mean, based on his account of his research of these different drugs that were, you know, involved in the race, uh, so to speak, of the holy grail of the industry. Um, well, to be the first. To FDA be the first, first. yeah. I... I was shocked that Flabanserin was even really in the running based on what he had said, because, again, it was like, well, you know, it wasn't much greater than placebo and all of that. And, and then so, yeah, like I mean, how it was, did it get re-upped and, and all of a sudden make it to the front of the, the line? Well, it just seems like a well, big, a big business. marketing. Yeah, scheme. you're right. And 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 um, Sprout Pharmaceutical, I believe they paid like, you know, this whole FDA you know, FDA is sexist campaign was started by Sprout. And um, so Sprout is the company that is 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 creating flibanserin. Right. And so I, I read in an article that they had actually paid consultants to to go out and start that. I would say propaganda, but that story. Can I say, uh, Liz, the if from what I understand, a you researched that flibanserin is actually like a psychotropic drug or it's dealing with is it even the right word? It's an antidepressant, right? It, that it's, it's an SSRI. It was an SSRI. It's funny. It, it was developed by a company in Deringer Ingelheim, which is a German company. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, they were developing it to treat depression, an SSRI. And while they were working on it, they always asked their clinical trial subjects, you know, what are your desire levels like? What is your, you know, what's your sexual experience like on this drug? Because a lot of SSRIs actually um, repress desire and impact orgasmic function. So they always ask about that. And they were finding that there seemed to be some little change um, for people on the drug. So uh, that's when they decided, oh, we really, since it didn't work as an antidepressant, actually. So they thought, well, this is a way to keep the drug going. Let's try it now on, you know, testing it on women to see maybe we'll get somewhere there with the sexual function issue. So it, it was never developed, actually, for this condition. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's interesting how this one made it through the FDA approval because we seem so, as a society, comfortable with the idea of SSRIs, right? Like playing with these particular um, elements like serotonin and dopamine and stuff. But, you know, when we're watching your documentary, when it's talking about testosterone and kind of introducing that to the body, you know, the the damaging effects of that um, health-wise, I don't know. Like, I, I guess I'm, it's it's... A, well, testosterone is part of the whole female arousal circuitry. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, no. But I mean, in Liz's film, there's a discussion of like how it increases cancer and all this stuff, um, which is why the FDA said no. Right. That's right. There were risks of cardiovascular problems, breast cancer with testosterone. Um, and it was interesting because it's sort of like you see, I saw the same kind of push with uh, testosterone that I've seen with Addie, which is. You know, at that point, it, they, and it was and it, the same, like, Shell Kingsburg, Erwin Goldstein, like, the same doctors and therapists that got out there and said, testosterone is the problem. Like, that's the reason that women are having a low desire. It's because they don't have enough testosterone. Well, and, and, then, and, and then now that we have this new drug, it's like, well, now it's a serotonin dopamine problem. Like, that's the reason women have low desire. You know, it's sort of... Wherever there's a drug, that becomes the scientific reason that we need it, you know, whatever that drug does. So it's actually something called condition branding, and it's 
been created by marketers where they, they, whenever there's a drug introduced, they reframe the definition of the disease so that this drug is going to solve that problem. Whether or not there's really much scientific evidence to back it up, there's no way to test your serotonin and dopamine levels. They're, the tests for testosterone are not very accurate. So, you know, this idea that we're going to somehow be able to link all of this to brain chemistry and hormones um, has never really been proven in a, in a clearly scientific way. And there's no really, uh, there's no real medical approach for going out and find out if that's really what's causing your low desire. So let's go into this a little bit. This, so this drug, and I think all of them are trying to treat what's been termed HSDD, right? Hypo, um, hypoactive sexual Disorder, dysfunction. I'm not sure that what they've settled on. Sexual desire disorder. Okay. Oh yeah, we left that desire. Right. (laughs) So, how how did this come to be? Is this is this really an issue? And I know you address this in your documentary um, quite a bit. I I was reading the the Wikipedia definition, and I was laughing out loud. Because because there's so many different, there's like general HSDD and then specific HSDD, which means you have desire, but just not with this partner. And I'm like, exactly, it actually said that. And I'm like, oh my God, how did this make it into DSM-5? That means you need to get back on Tinder. (laughs) You picked poorly. Liz, what's your experience in the research that you did about seeing this process yeah, so basically what happened was when Viagra came out in the late 90s, Pfizer and other drug companies thought that there had to be a bigger market there for women with their drugs. They needed to have a clearly defined disease in order to start testing. So twenty-two. So the doctors that came together to actually define female sexual dysfunction, which is sort of like the umbrella disorder that hypoactive sexual desire disorder falls under. Um, a little bit of a mouthful. But anyways... Um, that condition, which basically includes everything you can imagine, from low desire to trouble with orgasmic function to pain, to so it sort of covers it all. Um, that disorder, uh, the doctors that came up with it had ties to 22 drug companies. Um, so they were not a group of doctors that were sort of independent of the industry. Um, and then what's happened is those subcategory disorders have... Um, had specific drugs that have been developed and are being developed to try and address them. And in fact, there are two drugs out uh, for people that have um, vaginismus, which is pain. Um, and those were approved a while ago. And the first thing that was actually approved for female sexual dysfunction, which I think kind of it says it all and worked very, very well in the clinical trials, was something called the EuroCCD which was a $400 vibrator that you would get um, with a prescription from your doctor. Uh, so that was shown very early on to work for this condition. Uh, wow. It's like, his, it's like it's no better than the Victorian era. I know. Did anybody see Hysteria, the movie? I'm, I'm not, not even kidding. I know nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. I know very little. The medicalization of women's sexuality just keeps going on and on. Good way to make money. So, yeah, so basically then what happened was um, with HSDD, it's been a very contested disorder. And, in fact, in the DSM, the recent DSM-5, um, it is no longer con- considered a medical condition. It's considered, um, it, it's been renamed so that it has arousal in the title. 
and it is linked together because the latest studies are starting to show uh, that arousal for women, especially when they've been in long-term relationships, and everybody who was tested in, uh, for this drug was in a long-term relationship. So for women who have been in long-term relationships, it's found that arousal often comes before desire. So in other words, if you don't feel like having sex, it's a little like not being hungry, but you decide, okay, there's an ice cream sundae. Should I take a bite? Should I not take a bite? Well, so sometimes if you take a bite of an ice cream sundae, it'll taste delicious and you want more. So that's sort of this idea that arousal comes first, uh, and then you desire more ice cream. Right. Uh, let's take a bite. So, you know, the, 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 because our understanding is improved around this sort of thing, uh, they changed the definition. So um, it's very odd to have a drug approved for a disease that doesn't really exist and is not really recognized I was anymore. I was going to say, I mean, so that sounds like some progress, <laughs> a, a tiny a tiny step forward. I, are, so there are no laws regulating uh, pharmaceutical companies working with doctors? Like I wondered about the way that even it hits the media. It's like no one's researching who's funding them. I mean, you know, it's, it's not public knowledge. Do you have a thought on that? <laughs> Yeah, that's really a good point. So what was interesting when I was working on uh, Orgasm Inc., I started realizing I was seeing the same doctors everywhere. And when I began researching them, it was really clear that they were getting paid by pharmaceutical companies, either through grants or through being uh, called thought leaders and going around and doing presentations promoting these drugs and appearing in the media. Um, and in fact, some of them were therapists, and because they had PhDs, they they would put doctor in front of their names and at times even wear lab coats so they look more like a medical mm -hmm. doctor. And this gave them even more freedom to say whatever they wanted because they can't prescribe drugs. And so everything they said was an opinion, but they came across as being a doctor and they were connected to all sorts of research institutions and they looked very official. Um, and in fact, some of those people are still out there promoting these products, um, such as Cheryl Kinsberg. She's a uh, case, case Western and is a therapist, and she's been out promoting all of these different drugs. And the Burmans um, so as I've well. So I've seen the same faces, and they're appearing yet again. Um, now, it, in the case of sort of professional presentations in, in con at conferences and when doctors uh, write for medical journals, they have to disclose any ties that they have to the drug industry. But when they, when they are interviewed on the news, when they get interviewed for the mainstream press, they're not required to disclose that. And so, unfortunately, we are often getting medical information from doctors that are really sales reps of these drug companies, um, and they are not being—they are not being presented that way. And we we trust doctors in general. We trust them. They're they're the experts that we rely on for our well-being. So, you know, there's something about that doctor or that lab coat um, that that makes us really listen to them. But we need to start putting in place laws that protect the public from this sort of misrepresentation. If a doctor is taking money from a drug company and he's promoting that drug, he should disclose it so that we know it's really an ad. And it can't necessarily be trusted because it's Fun. definitely biased information. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, and in fact, Berm, what's her name? Is it Liz? Laura Berm? Berman? Liz Laura Berman. Berman. In your documentary. She was just on the Oz show a couple of days ago talking yeah. about Flavanserin. Yeah, we were like, oh, we know that name. I'm like, oh my <laughs> God. Documentary. Caution, caution. Exactly. <laughs> um, we're going to take a break real quick. We're talking um, with Liz Kanner, uh, filmmaker for Orgasm Inc., the wonderful documentary that's available on Netflix and iTunes and everywhere else. You're listening to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. Check us out on Twitter at TA Sex Talk to join the conversation. We'll be right back.
and we're back here talking with Liz Canner, filmmaker of Orgasm Eek, great documentary. Uh, and Check out A's blog at pbwitha.com about phlebanserin, which we're discussing now. Sorry. So picking back up, we were talking about how much money uh, can be made by these doctors who are going in the media and talking about or pitching or giving their professional independent opinion on these different drugs coming out. Um, and and I was astounded by some of these figures, uh, Liz. So I know you had mentioned um, Laura Berman getting paid. What, what, what was that? She was getting paid um, $75,000 a day to promote certain products. Um, so it's a tremendous amount of money that some of these doctors are paid. Uh, you can actually now, though, go online and see if your doctor is one of these uh, doctors that takes a lot of money from the pharmaceutical industry. ProPublica has a site that uh, will list, actually, you can go put in your doctor's name and will give you the exact amounts and from what drug company. And that's so, ProPublica? Uh, yeah, but the thing about it is that now, um, the as I was saying earlier, some of these doctors are not doctors; they're therapists. So, like Laura Berman is a therapist who has who's been promoting drugs, uh, and yet she can't prescribe them. So, she, because she's a therapist, she doesn't have to flow, um, which right. is one of the reasons I think that they use therapists. Right. Right. And uh, so it's kind of funny to have an expert opinion from someone that doesn't really know anything about these drugs and can't even prescribe them to anyone. <laughs> oh God! Yeah, can I ask you in in your doc? We deal. You talk about uh, so you have a one woman who's sort of a case study almost for. Um, she's getting you know she thinks she has a problem, so she's going to the doctor and she's, and she's doing these clinical trials and. Uh, kind of discovers her sexuality through the film. I was curious, you know, you only kind of profiled this one woman. Did you talk with a lot of women or find, you know, did you see a common theme in, in women who thought they had a problem but didn't or? Well, I, you know, I spoke to a lot of women uh, when I made the film and then afterwards as I've been going around and touring with it. And one thing which, you know, really speaks to the fact that we have very poor sex education in this country uh, that that has kept coming up, especially in older women, um, is that they were unaware of the fact that most women have orgasms, literally, that they need that sort of stimulation in order to, to come. And so many of them thought that they had a problem because they weren't having orgasms during uh, heterosexual intercourse. And so the woman that I filmed in my documentary, Charletta, actually went so far as to have an electrode put up her spine that was supposed to trigger an orgasm with an electric current. Um, and all it did was actually make her leg kick out. But um, <laughs> when they... Yeah, she has she a funny really line. Cute. It's basically like, all I'm good for is kicking you in the behind at this point. Um, but uh, when I asked her about her orgasmic function, I was really shocked to find, this is after she'd gone through this whole ordeal, which was quite painful, um, that she was perfectly healthy. She was just upset she wasn't having orgasms when she was having, you know, a very, I guess, kind of vanilla <laughs> intercourse with her husband. Um, so, you know, I think that, that part of the problem here and the risk here is that so many people 
could be taken advantage of because they think they have something wrong with them but they don't. And, you know, the women, for instance, in the study for phlebanserin were having uh, three sex- satisfying sexual events a month to begin with. So baseline, they were pretty sexually healthy. I mean, they've been in a relationship for 10 years. I mean, that seems to me fine. You know, wow. <laughs> like, what's wrong with that? Yeah. Wow. Right? Yeah. There's nothing that says what normal is, there's, and that's been part of the problem, right? There's nothing that says you're supposed to have 20 sexual thoughts a day to be healthy. Um, we don't. There, sex is something that's very individual, and there is no normal. It's something, you know, it's like dancing or art, or you know, it's that that you should be really enjoying in a way that that you find pleasurable, not being sort of told you have to fit into a certain box. And I I think that's the real risk here. And I, the other thing is that I don't want to. There are some medical conditions, however, that do affect sexual function, and we know what a lot of those are. Things like diabetes, um, radical hysterectomies, if you're on SSRIs. Uh, birth control pills has been found to lower libido. So there are some clear medical conditions, but a very small majority of people actually suffer from those. Um, a, a lot more women, if they feel they're having sexual function changes, it, it may be due to things like aging, stress due to overwork, past sexual abuse. Um, there's lots of being with the same partner for a long time can cause a change of desire. Um, there have been studies that shown changing partners affects that. But, you know, I think that trying to reduce it to some sort of brain chemistry is a very risky endeavor. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and so I wanted to touch on uh, how much money is really at play here, because this really is, I, I mean, the percentages that I've seen thrown out about, and they're kind of all over depending on who's doing the research, but with women who might suffer from this or could benefit from this kind of drug, something as high as even like 48% of women and then I've also seen lower numbers of 10 to 20 percent. Either way, those are big numbers. Um, and I think. Yeah. To diagnose an entire to, population. Right. Or yeah. Or to, for, to have, a, you know, someone on a pill for something. Um, and also a little piece of information I found out was that Sprout Pharmaceutical just sold. Uh, so they got FDA approval in August and a few days after um, they were sold for a billion dollars a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, they're profiting off of your sexual dysfunction. <laughs> your your, your right. sexual boredom. That is a lot of money. So I'm thinking, and and again, it was this is in my blog, but like from okay, so my perspective on Sprout Pharmaceuticals, it's husband and wife team come along. Okay, phlebanserin, you know, gets dropped and it's on sale. Okay, well, you know, I see a lot of potential in this. Well, it's not really much different than you know, it doesn't test better than the placebo well that's okay we can spin it we'll make it <laughs> we'll we'll, you, we'll just spin it the right way and market it and create this wonderful beautiful company and tell them the fda is sexist and but think about how much money we can make a billion dollars i don't know <laughs> liz what about uh i was really interested in the discussion of um like vaginal reconstructive surgery which comes up in your film and mm. i didn't no, this was happening as much as it is. I mean, after I saw your film, I went online to read about how common it is. I mean, it said that even in the last five years, it's sort of quadrupled in how many people are doing it. I feel like it's still a little fringe, but but a problem. I don't know. What was your experience right. with it's, that? Yeah, it's, it's funny in my film, I wasn't planning to cover the designer vagina phenomenon because I felt like, and it was at the very early stages when I started shooting, uh, that it was taking off, that it was really starting to be marketed. And I thought, nobody is going to 
do this. I mean, there's no medical evidence that shows it improves sexual function. You get on these chat rooms, you see women talking about all the mistakes and how much pain they're in and there's chronic pain syndromes. You know, it's a very delicate uh, area. There's, it's very vascular, so um, there's risk of bleeding to death. Um, there's just, there's all these problems with starting to do surgery in your vaginal area. Um, but surprisingly, it, I think it took off more than anything. Um, it, it, at some years, it's been the leading uh, form of cosmetic surgery in terms of, you know, rising in numbers. Oh my God. So the, the phenomenon, I think, is another one of those areas where what the doctors have been saying really takes advantage of our lack of good sex education. Um, there's this move, partly because I think of pornography, and I, evidently the experts I've talked to have said we're engaging in more in oral sex as a culture, which is a good thing. But um, that, <laughs> yeah. and and also because of shaving pubic hair, right? Partly because of this oral doing oral sex, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so women are seeing themselves sometimes, and they haven't seen themselves since they were young, and they think if their inner labia, their labia minora, is longer than their outer labia that there's something wrong with them. And these doctors are often promoting that idea. So there's this whole sort of move of trying to create some sort of, you know, aesthetic. Well, the reality is that that as we age, our labia grows as well. Um, and it's totally natural to have that sort of uh, symmetry. So, you know, that kind of layout. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is a very distressing thing. In fact, I did an article for Glamour a few years ago where I went and interviewed a leading uh, gynecologist who was the head of his division in his hospital. And I, we went in with a healthy 24-year-old and had her get examined. And he told her that her labia were you know, misshapen because of this situation no. and that her clitoral hood was too big and she should have it removed all for <gasps> a mere $12,000 bargain price. He said, get them both done bargain price. Oh, yeah, and he wanted to remove the mons pubis, too. Um, oh, wait, 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 wait. He went to remove her pubic bone? The mons pubis is like the mound, right? Yes, yes, you can make that smaller. Well, but, but 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 that's one of the best things. In se- oh, oh my God, God, I'm going crazy. That it's, someone I would was... actually have the balls to say that to a 24-year-old girl. Oh, oh. Okay, I, I'm sorry, go on, yeah. go on. Yeah, it was very disturbing. And yeah, he, he talked about the G-spot injection, which are these collagen injections, which of course have not been really shown to improve sexual function. Um, so it, the American College of Gynecologists and Obstetricians, which is the largest membership organization uh, for gynecologists. Who doesn't love the vagina? <laughs> yeah. Well, they actually came out saying that it was untenable for doctors to be performing this surgery because of all the risks and side effects and uh, the fact that uh, there's no proven studies that show that it works in the way that it was being promoted. Um, and yet some of these doctors... Who, who founded this whole thing. There's this doctor named Dr. Matlock, are still members of their organization, mm. and last I looked. Um, but the, the, this was the first surgery to ever be trademarked and franchised uh, by this doctor named Dr. Matlock, who was on Dr. 90210. And he really started the craze uh, through that show and has made a fortune off of it um, and has done lots of reality TV shows showing his wealth. Uh, and that's yeah. and one of the ways it's been promoted to doctors at these conferences. Is they, you know, a doctor will start out by showing his Porsche and say, like, I bought this through all these designer vaginas that I did. 
Oh my um, god. I appreciate so it. It's a very craft kind of thing that's really impacted by I appreciate it in your film. I mean, you called it female genital mutilation, which is exactly what I thought of watching it. Uh, you know, at least it's happening in a clean <laughs> physician's clinic. But, but it's, but it's dangers, even more dangerous. The scarring, everything is anyway, it's just as bad. And, and the way that we Americans view it as this like other third world issue. When it's happening by will here, I yeah. feel like that's even well, more dangerous. Um, Liz, yeah, it's, it's, oh. Yep. Go ahead. Well, I just think it's interesting because one word that's been used over and over again, and I see it with the proof of subanserin, and I've seen it uh, with these surgeries, is this idea of choice, right? Like, women deserve the right to choose, which is, of course, taken from the feminist movement and then reappropriated for marketing purposes. But, you know, I, and, and, and it comes down, people will say, well, women are choosing to do this to themselves. But even genital mutilation, it's a cultural phenomenon, and we're seeing a cultural phenomenon here. Women are being told that their genitals are not beautiful, so they're going to be less valuable. I mean, that's the same kind of thing that happens in those cultures, that where they perform genital mutilation. So, you know, I think that it can't really be separated. It's just we're seeing it, maybe it's not, you know, become completely mainstream, but it is a rising form of surgery, and it's the same sort of uh, cultural pressures that are, that are causing it. Yeah, Liz, I was interested in how you came to make this documentary. Like, was it something that you were passionate about already? Or I think in the film you mentioned sort of falling into it. You know, was this a big eye opener for you going down this journey? And, you know, how how has it affected or changed your life? Yeah, that's a really good question. I really didn't want to make a documentary about uh, the pharmaceutical industry that was going to be a big expose. I at the time, I'd been producing documentaries for a decade on human rights issues like police brutality, and I was starting to get nightmares from my films um, mm. because when you wa- make that kind of film, you're watching the same footage over and over again. Sometimes it can be quite violent footage. Um, and so I actually wanted to do a film on something that was pleasurable. So I got interested in what science was saying about women and pleasure, but not in a critical way. I was actually hopeful that there was some you know, deeper understanding and uh, ended up working for a drug company um, that was working on a, an orgasm cream for women. And that's when I started to really get suspicious about what was going on because I started asking them normal questions and getting very bizarre answers hmm. um, and began to soon recognize that, unfortunately, we weren't as far along as everyone was promoting in terms of understanding female sexuality. Um, and so... Uh, it has changed my life in the sense that I didn't really set out to make an expose. Um, I was actually hoping to do something else, <laughs> make a science documentary. <laughs> well, we're very grateful that you did make the movie because it's, it's, it is an eye opener and we really, uh, we, we really encourage everybody to watch it and sit your husband down and watch it too, or your partner. Um, yeah, seriously. I mean, it's, I think it's getting everyone involved in the conversation. So the movie is Orgasm, Inc. Liz Kanner is the filmmaker. And you can find the movie on Netflix, Hulu, iTunes, um, and uh, also orgasminc.com is the website. Dot org, yeah. Oh, dot org, okay. And um, Liz, thank you. Thank you for talking with us. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on your show. For sure. And your next film coming out that you're working on is around campus violence, right? So we'll keep an eye out for that. Wow. A, after talking with Liz about all these influences, I, I just I feel like we need to unpack a little bit how 
pharmaceutical companies. I mean, all these other motivations are shaping our perspective on our sexuality and what's normal. It's really alarming, honestly, because like even with the vaginoplasty and with these, you know, doctors and people being paid in the media and pharmaceutical companies coming out and like Liz was saying, telling us what is normal or defining normal that marginalizes a lot of other people. And if you don't happen to be lucky enough, quote unquote, to sort of be within those boundaries, which is just arbitrarily chosen. I'm not right, sure. Right, where you're yeah. born and the type of sexual partners you have. Are they more or experienced not even that, than or like, you? Yeah, or even how your vagina looks. It's like if oh, your like, vagina you happens to look others? like a 12-year-old where the labia are inside, then you're lucky. I, I, you know, who knows why these particular it, things are chosen as trends are chosen as normal, but well, and also back to the media issue, which you know something that ha- came up in Liz's doc was how uh, pharmaceutical companies got the right to market directly to what civilians or citizens uh, on TV, you know, through the Reagan administration. And it's like, wow, like that changed everything. I mean, I immediately thought of the way SNL does all these commercial spoofs of, of medicine. Right. And, and when you'd get the long list at the end of side effects and, but, but after two decades of being fed this, I mean, we grew up on it. Right. What's normal? What's not? Psychologizing everything, like oh, I've got a disorder. If I feel pain this one time, I mean, not you know, almost being hypersensitive and trying to diagnose everything rather than well, I don't know having a talk about how you feel and and seeing if you can work it out. It's it's just the it's the whole labeling process as basically this syndrome is abnormal. And this is normal. And it's just, I feel like, especially as women and especially um, with sexuality, we need to be extremely careful about about whether that is happening for us, whether we're a victim of it or mm-hmm. whether we're allowing it to happen. And I think it just takes, first of all, it takes awareness, which is why we're, we're talking about it and trying to get, you know, movies like Orgasm Inc. out there. But I, we just need to, like, for example, when I first learned about vaginoplasty, I went not too long ago. I really I went to the mirror and I looked at my vagina <laughs> and I and I'm like, wow. So am I normal? And I had the question for a moment of should I feel insecure about this? Basically, yeah. like is huh? how am I? And I'm com- I started comparing myself to this normal right this like figment normal well, that what was being thrown out been there told is normal through right. that and luckily I've had my article. lovers have been very praising of my vulva and like oh you have a beautiful vagina which is great yeah. but if but t you had an experience where it's, yeah i feel like because i had a lover early on tell me it was beautiful it built it, it built in a confidence you. right uh, yeah, it built in a confidence that allowed me to not be affected by later lovers who maybe they were uncomfortable around it or they hadn't had as many sexual experiences. Only because you have pu- you keep your pubic hair. Oh, that's, right. That's well, what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I yeah. So that's kind of a little bit separate. Like, I feel like they'll still say, oh, it's lovely or, you know, like it. But could you alter it in this way? And I'm I'm open to people making their choices on what they like. I don't like it. It makes it uncomfortable for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just I'm able to assert that because I am confident from people I've been with. But that makes me think about 
if had, you had run into him first. Yeah, if my first lover had been someone who was re- rejecting of the way that I am, I would I would totally have like fucked up <laughs> feelings about it and be conflicted and probably have a harder time orgasming. I mean, all of it would make me really would self-conscious. It, right, right. Oh. And I mean, if I talk with friends, I... I'm I do have a friend that I ran into I think I told you know in an earlier episode I talked about taking her to the sex shop and we bought a vibrator for her and all this stuff but she was having a hard time orgasming during sex and to me it's funny because I misunderstood that statement like to me I was like oh yeah I mean you can orgasm during sex with the guy using his hand and doing a bunch of other things like for me I don't orgasm from just penetration right I'm orgasming from like a duality right from a well not other like all of it happening at the same time it's penetration and other things happening mm-hmm. and uh and I think for her I think she actually I mean I'm curious now I think for her she thought it was what's coming up in Liz's documentary that it's supposed to just happen like if the guy right. rolls his hips enough it's going to happen and it's like well n- no. no you yeah I mean you can have an orgasm while that you know but you have to do these other things and I and I find even with certain male partners like they they don't quite understand that either and I find they're usually really open to doing it for me once I explain it, but they're, but that they don't already know. They don't inherently know. Yeah. I just had this amazing thought and it totally, totally escaped me. But I do want to point people to, um, because, uh, you know, this conversation launches, goes into the other part of this conversation, which is, okay, so what is at the root of this, you know, HS? DD desire disorder thing going Hypo-sexual on. Hyposexual desire disorder. Right. And so that is will be a separate show, <laughs> which we will be very excited to have. But um, some work that you can read about is uh, that we've had on the show also Emily Nagoski. Come as you, she's the author of the book Come As You Are, which is fascinating information and uh, look at female arousal. And then also I had mentioned before Daniel Bergner's book What Do Women Want has some amazing science around desire and what do women want uh sex at dawn by christopher ryan yeah um i think so a big i'm just issue listing is, some resources yeah women don't feel entitled to talk about their sexuality yet oh this is this was my amazing Yay! thought thank you for okay um, i'm always there to help you <laughs> <laughs> might not be that amazing but anyway but yes you're right however as we were talking about the anxiety that could have been there if you did have if you had other programming around your vagina if you were insecure about your labia it's like we have so many as women we have so many things that could be running through our mind when we're naked and in our most intimate and vulnerable space with someone i mean the body issues alone right okay so now with, we, am i too fat am i too thin am yeah I, right exactly but, like but i think these, the way my body shaped but i think these things really lie in the depths of our consciousness whether Mm -hmm. even though we may not think that we're insecure like Mm -hmm. consciously Mm -hmm. i I feel like there's room for very like in the background of our mind these anxieties to be at a very low level almost um unidentifiable sort of place and i think it's our responsibility to really make sure that you work on those well to 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 see them well like the, and they can they can inhibit your orgasm without realizing of course it. and that's what i'm saying like it's in like for i know t you talk about how yes we need to communicate with our partners and our partner needs to know what they're doing and whatnot and i agree with you, you right uh, but i also feel like, and my experience has been for me is that no matter what my partner did um if i was totally 
in my head and had all these things running through my mind there's no freaking way I don't care if you were Don Juan there's no way I was gonna orgasm like right. it was all up to me basically well and I mean you know I remember having a lover grab my stomach once and I thought I was always very confident about my body and immediately I went oh my god my fat <laughs> And then I became aware of it and then I addressed it and then I started to like it when guys grabbed my stomach because it made me feel really sexy and it made me feel like they were into my body. Right. They they, wanted it. Yeah. So so just this is a detail of weird little moments where you're startled by your own self-doubts. Right. Yeah. and, And acknowledging them. I mean. It's I like what you're saying. eh? like it's a it's a mix. You definitely have to work on yourself and find your own orgasm. I mean, I had that revelation also. It was like I you know, guys would say, well, what do you want? And I, you know, I realized I have no idea. And I really had to pay attention and start going, oh, I want this. Yeah, but I want that. And what I'm saying, yes, you're right. And apart from knowing what you want, it's like, okay, I can know what I want all day long. But if I, my head isn't clear and I'm incapable of being in the moment, there's no way I'm surrendering to the physicality of, of whatever's going on. And there's no way, and even the emotional connection that happens, which brings arousal and desire and is part of the whole circus. So I, like that's not going to happen and that's a whole other part of the equation and they talk about female desire being in the head or mm-hmm. in the and I for me my experiences I totally agree but I think answering the what do you want question is sifting through the noise that you're talking about it's it's like what I mean by that is I don't know what I want because I haven't explored my body and I'm not comfortable with it and I don't feel safe saying it and and mm-hmm. and, 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 and and right 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 I mean I, I would say to male partners I would say maybe even observing where the woman has discomfort. And I think you can be an, a support and an aid and, and an aid to helping her get out of her head on that, that subject. I'm not saying uh, yeah. it's not, it's not their no, responsibility, I, but, sure. but you'll see, oh, she's insecure about that. Let me, <laughs> let me blanket it with love and attention until it kind of neutralizes it. I mean, yeah. I think you can get there I, with yeah, her. Totally. We're going on because T and I yeah. are very passionate about uh, <clears throat> the subject. So, <laughs> But anyway, my point being, let's be careful and and be aware. Watch the documentary. Be be very aware of where you're getting your information from. And yeah, and you know, I would say last resort, diagnose it as a disorder. I mean, that's that's a last, last resort. Last. There's a lot. Yeah, last I, I would say check out those resources. Vibrators we can go first. a long way. <laughs> you're listening to pushing boundaries with TNA. Uh, tweet us at TA Sex Talk on this convert on this topic, and uh, A wrote a really beautiful blog about flibanserin and what's happening right now with the pharmaceutical I would say industry. It's spicier than beautiful, um, thoughtful, <laughs> intelligent. <laughs> no, uh, at pbwithta.com. So uh, thanks and for listening. Please go to iTunes and uh, write a review if you like what you're hearing. It's the best way to help us. Thanks so much. 